Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15 tonight, as we consider again, as we've been reading the story of our forefather Abraham, our forefather in the faith, we've been reading his of his pilgrimage and considering our own. We want to do that again tonight. Uh, when we last saw Abraham last week in Genesis 14, he had just had two tremendous victories. He had rescued Lot uh, from King Keterleomar, whom we, for the sake of brevity and a bit of humor, called King Cheddar. Uh, he uh, defeated King Cheddar and his armies. He redeemed Lot from slavery, who'd been taken captive. And then he had come back to celebrate, to rejoice in the victory, the victory that God Most High had given, and the God who had blessed him and given him success. And so, in that celebration, he'd come back and he had encountered uh, the king of Jerusalem, or the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, a mysterious figure named Melchizedek. That king met him in the valley of kings with arms full. He brought bread and he brought wine to celebrate the victory. And then he raised his arms and he blessed Abraham because that king was also a priest. He blessed him on behalf of God Most High. Now there was another king who came to greet Abraham and that was the king of wickedness, the king of Sodom, who had come not with his hands full but with his hands empty, who had come not to give but to get, who who basically wanted to receive from Abraham and give to Abraham, but give to get so that Abraham would, would bow in allegiance to him and not to God most high. And so Abraham said, no, he said, my allegiance is to God most high. And so Abraham won two victories. One was physical in battle, in warfare, and the other was the battle of faith, the battle of trust, the battle of his allegiance. And so coming off of that now, We arrive at our passages, Genesis 15, and now Abraham has questions for the Lord. Questions because not everything is going well in his own eyes, despite these tremendous successes. After all, he had gone to bat for Lot, and yes, the Lord had given him success, but was the Lord going to go to bat for him in the promises the Lord had made to him? He had been faithful to his nephew, Lot. Was the Lord going to be faithful to the promises God had made to him when those promises didn't seem like they were being fulfilled? So Abraham is in turmoil here at chapter 15, wondering because of his circumstances, Lord, are you for me or are you against me? That's a question a lot of us feel. When circumstances seem adversarial or difficult. And so we want to consider Abram's faith this evening and what we may glean and learn from him. At Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, let me invite you to give your attention to God's word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Amen. This is God's word. He write it on our hearts and give us understanding. Let's pray to him. Our Father in heaven, uh, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Things good not only for Abraham, but for our souls too. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, you may have heard the story, because it's a classic preacher joke. A monk joined a monastery, took a vow of silence, and after the first ten years, a superior called him in to ask him, do you have anything to say? And the monk replied, food bad. And uh, ten years later, the superior called him back in, do you have anything else uh, you want to say? He said, bed, hard. And then another 10 years went by, and again he was called before his superior, and when asked if he had anything to say, he replied, I quit. And the response was, it doesn't surprise me a bit, you've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. I I thought it was funny. And I wonder if you are or have been or who knows for us what is yet to come or we have the kind of place in life where we're saying, Lord, what is going on? What is it you were doing? My life is going this way and I don't understand. Why did this happen or why did that not happen or why did that not happen yet? And I really thought it was going to happen. <laughs> How am I supposed to carry on? How can I keep on trusting you, Lord? Believers have thoughts like that, of course. Now, is it wrong? Some would say it is wrong to question the Lord. Some would say it is wrong to complain or to bring those concerns to the Lord. And ask the Lord, what is he up to? But is it wrong? Isn't that what Abraham does here? Doesn't he say, Lord... You have promised to be for me and not against me. Now, how does that square with what I'm experiencing? You promised something to me. And here we are. I'm befuddled, Lord. I don't get it. What's going on? And so this passage shows us Abraham struggling in his faith and God meeting him in struggling faith with assurance. And I want you to think about that as you and I face struggles ourselves. And what do we learn from this passage? I want to highlight three things with you. 
Uh, in the first place, we learn that genuine faith can complain to God. You see that in the first three verses. He complains. But then God responds in verses 4 and 5, and there we see faith welcomes sacraments of assurance. And then at verse 6, there's a comment made from the narrator, Moses, about the story that Abram believed and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And there we learn that genuine faith is enough faith to be right with God. Abram isn't wrong with God here. He's right with God. So let's think about these three things. In in the first place, in verses 1 to 3, we see Abram struggling over the promises. And we learn that genuine faith can complain to God. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord, or the word of Yahweh, came to him in a vision. And after these things, chapter 15, is the things that took place in chapter 14. And God says to him, fear not. Fear not, Abram. Now, was there something to fear? Well, yes, there was something to fear. What? Well, perhaps, because in chapter 14, verses 21 to 23, Abram had just turned down the spoils of war that the wicked king of Sodom was offering him. Maybe Abraham, having rejected those riches, not wanting the king to claim his allegiance, not wanting that king to say, well, I made you rich, Abram, bow to me. Having rejected that, maybe the Lord is saying to him, don't worry, Abraham. I am your great reward, or your reward will be very great. The translators take it either way. It can be taken either way. And maybe what's happening is here is God is saying, fear not. What this world can offer you doesn't compare to me giving me to you. And for having me, the king of kings, in your corner, on your behalf, Abram. Don't don't fear. I'm your exceedingly great reward. Or perhaps here in fear, he's looking back at his victory over King Cheddar. (laughs) King Cheddar wasn't used to losing. He had Wiped everybody on, out on the way through Sodom. Seven or eight towns and peoples he had destroyed. And then Abram catches up with him in the middle of the night and defeats him and drives his troops uh, uh, off back home with the tail between their legs. This guy isn't used to that kind of thing. And maybe Abraham was lying in his tent at night thinking, well, I won a great victory and I got Lot back, but how soon before King Cheddar turns around with a renewed army to lay it on me? And God says to him, fear not. I am your shield, Abraham. And what does a shield do? It protects. I'm your guardian. I'll defend you, Abraham. Don't fear. Perhaps Abraham is just fearing his neighbors. Success breeds contempt. Don't you find sometimes in your own heart contempt for those who do exceedingly well in life? Many people do. Others undoubtedly hated Abraham for the success God had given him. Maybe they wished that they had done what he had done. Or maybe they simply wished that he hadn't done what he had done. Because, hey, Cheddar was gone now. Cheddar was on his way home. Don't trouble the waters, Abraham, by chasing him down, riling him up because he's going to come back. And now, Abraham, we're mad at you for this victory you have had. Or maybe they fear Abraham because Abraham had just won a great military victory against this incredible king. And now maybe they suspect 
Abraham might test himself against his own neighbors and try to conquer them with a sword, which we know that he didn't. But you can imagine the neighbors having these stirring fears, fears of the vengeance of King Cheddar, fears of Abraham. Maybe Abraham was fearful. Or maybe here the fear is uh, simply over the future. Abraham is laying in bed and he's thinking, God promised me an offspring. He promised me a seed. And I'm getting older and my wife is getting older and nothing has happened. We don't have our own children. And God said that seed, through that seed, through my offspring, the whole world was going to be blessed. And, and when is that going to happen? And so in all these ways, Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, knows our fears. He knows our anxious thoughts. And he comes to him. It is sometimes much easier to pray Psalm 27 verse 1 than to believe it in the dark of night. The psalmist prays, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Maybe he could pray that, but maybe he had a hard time believing. The Lord says, fear not, Abram. So the Lord comes to him like a mother or father who comes to their child to comfort the fearful child after they have cried out in the night. So God comes to him by night with a vision. Don't be afraid. Find your security and your satisfaction in me, God says. I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. I'm your safety and I'm your supply. I am who you need and I am all in for you, Abram. Fear not. Now notice how Abram responds in verses 2 and 3. But Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue or I go on being childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, he goes on, behold, you've given me no offspring. As if he just hadn't said that. And a member of my household will be my heir. But he means not one of my own from my own loins. I have questions about this, Lord. My family situation makes it difficult to believe uh, the promise you have made for me, Lord. What is your plan? Where is my son? How is the whole world going to be blessed through me? I mean, I left when you told me to go. And I went where you told me to go. And I've been to Egypt, but I've returned to Egypt. And I fought for a lot. And you gave me success, but I'm not getting any younger. Sarah's not getting any younger. I'm continuing and your promise doesn't seem to be making any progress. Eleazar here is not his own flesh and blood. He is likely either uh, the oldest male child born in his extended household to one of his servants or extended family. So he's going to be the inheritor. Or he's, there's, there's some question about the Hebrew. He may be a kind of business manager here or, or a legal entitled or the legal entitled heir of some sort. Clearly that's the case. He's the inheritor and he's a Syrian, Abram says to the Lord. But I thought we were going to have a great nation and a people. And so he lays out his problem. God had promised him seed and there's no seed. Let's get on with this project, Lord. So he's baffled. 
Now pause there and reflect how encouraging that actually is to hear that. It shows us the freedom faith has to complain to God. Is it ever okay to question God? Absolutely, it is okay. Now, not in every way. I mean, sure, to rant and rave and, you know, shake your fist and stomp your feet and throw a hissy fit like a little child isn't appropriate. But every parent knows a child can complain like that or a child can complain respectfully. I mean, you can be defiant. Something goes wrong. You shake your fist. Why are you doing this to me? Why? And what you're really saying is, God, you come down off your throne. You appear before my court and you answer to me about what is going on in my life because I suspect you are wrong. There's that kind of attitude. But there's also the kind of attitude of the child who says, Father, I don't understand. Help me understand. Help me to walk in your ways. Uh, Give me some more insight here. I I, I just don't get it, but I want to be faithful. And you can see that Abraham has that latter attitude because he speaks respectfully. He says, Adonai Yahweh, or Master Lord. uh, he, uh, He knows he's a servant and Yahweh is his sovereign. He speaks respectfully. And the complaint itself is a sign of faith, not a sign of unbelief. It's a sign of his faith. He brings his difficulty to the Lord and asks the Lord to be true to the word that the Lord had promised him. In other words, he's believing what the Lord had said to him. And he's just looking for its fulfillment. So it's a believing complaint here. Only faith would do that. As uh, Ralph Davis, my Old Testament seminary professor, says, unbelief spits on promises. Only faith struggles over them. Unbelief dismisses promises. Only faith debates them. And so we see that genuine faith can complain to God. The second thing we see is God's response at verses 4 and 5. And there we learn that genuine faith welcomes sacraments of assurance. God in verses 4 and 5 wants to reassure the heart of Abraham. And notice how he does it. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So he reiterates the promise. He makes it clear he's going to have a son from his own loins. And then he gives him a sign of the promise to help him believe the promise. Verse 5, he brings him outside. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. Now, isn't that interesting? What is it the Lord's doing? Well, he's not building some rational argument about how God is God. He always speaks the truth. He knows the end from the beginning. He will do what he said he will do. And you just need to buck up and believe me. But no, actually, he appeals to Abraham's imagination. He takes him outside and he says, count the stars, Abraham. It's it's a reiteration of the promise by picture. It's a visible sign of a verbal promise. The stars themselves don't speak. But they are a picture that needs the preaching to explain the picture. It's kind of like um, that photo of North Korea and South Korea that 
has gone around on the internet. The, the meme, it was, it, was a, it was a photo taken by astronaut Scott Kelly and then distributed around the world. And it asked the question in a, in a pictorial way, does, does communism work? Does it make people better off? And the meme isn't arguing with words, it just shows a picture. What's the picture? Well, it shows a picture of North Korea pitch black by night, or almost nearly so. Barely any electricity running, rolling blackouts. And then it shows, by contrast, South Korea just across the border lit up like Christmas at Rockefeller Center. And, and you could just imagine the world of the people who live there. They have lights at night. They have running heat and air. They have working refrigerators. They are enjoying the benefits of the modern world. A free society, the meme is saying, is better at improving life for everyone, at least technologically. <laughs> the picture paints a thousand words. Well, as in man's economy, so in God's, and as in the physical, so in the spiritual. The truth sets us free, and the truth sometimes just needs to capture our imagination. And that's what God wants to do with us. This came home to me personally one summer when, as a college student, I went to go live with a bunch of college Christians on the New Jersey shore. I worked on the boardwalk selling souvenirs and beach supplies to people. While in the evenings we gathered for worship and we prayed that the Lord would open doors for us to share our faith with people. Well, nearly every day, because I walked on the boardwalk to and from work over a mile or two each way, and there were these giant jetties, uh, massive stone boulders that had been purposefully laid out as breakers for the waves, out stretching into the ocean almost like they were, they were on their way to England or Africa. And nearly every day I would walk out on the end of the jetty, which as I now understand that you're not really supposed to do, and I would, I would stand there all by myself with all of North America behind me, all of South America sort of over my right shoulder and Canada over my left, and surrounded by just thousands and thousands of gallons, and tens and hundreds and millions of gallons of water. And in every direction I could see left and right and straight, water, water everywhere, and meditated on Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, which just simply says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens. And at night I would go to that jetty and stare at all these stars with all the lights of America behind me, not in my way from seeing them. And I would just think, hmm, the Atlantic, God just sort of scoops a little water out of a pail next to, or in his workroom, and he, he just drops the Atlantic Ocean onto the earth. And I would think, hmm, the, the, the span of the heavens, he, he just... He spans it out between his, his thumb and his pinky. He, it, it captured my imagination and it made me imagine God to be far bigger and more powerful and greater than I had ever thought before. And it, and it, it so settled my soul that a God that big who could do that would so humbly care for me and send his son for me. And it humbled me, but it assured me of, of his love and his concern. It kind of had that effect on me. This is what God is doing with Abraham. Obviously, the promise he made to him 
is super significant in world redemptive history. But the principle is the same. Abraham, see, let the picture paint a thousand words for you. And so at verse 5, what we're seeing is God stooping to the weakness of Abraham's faith and impressing him with the firmness of his word. And he does that. He gives us props to support our faith. He gives us crutches because we can't walk in faith on our own. And this is the way that sacraments work too. This is the way that the Lord's Supper and baptism is intended to work by God in our lives. I mean, think of the Lord's Supper. God says to us, do you see the bread? In a moment, I'll show it to you. (laughs) Do you see the bread? Just as the bread sustains your physical being, so I will sustain you spiritually, whatever your circumstances, until I bring you home to glory. And do you see the wine? And if I went that far for you to shed my own blood for you, do you not know that no lesser circumstance will keep me from being for you? Jesus says to us, don't just count the stars, though though when you do, you're doing what Abraham did, and, and God says he'll have that many people, more than you can count. But Jesus says, don't just count the stars, come to my table. This is for you. This is how sacraments work. They don't symbolize our faith. They don't symbolically represent us believing. They represent God promising and the promise he makes to us. And they help us believe him about those promises. That's helpful too when you get to baptism because baptism isn't as so often is thought simply a sign we perform because we're representing to God or to the church or to the world that we believe or we have faith. But in fact, baptism represents what God promises to us, what God is assuring us of. The promise of cleansing from sin. Just as water cleanses the dirt of our body, so our sins are cleansed in the blood of Christ. And you can believe it because God wants you to experience it in the water, so to speak. So genuine faith welcomes this kind of sacrament of assurance and reassurance. True, genuine faith knows that it's not strong, but it's weak. Not that it has it all together, but that it's needy, but that God has everything it needs. And God says, I do. And let me show that to you, not just preach that to you. And so faith welcomes a sacrament of assurance here. And then finally we see at verse 6, the commentator or the narrator, Moses himself, interjects here, Abram believed, verse 6, And he, that is the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. And what we see here is that genuine faith is enough faith to be right with God. Genuine faith, sincere faith, imperfect though that faith is, weak though that faith is, is all that is needed to be right with God. Abraham isn't wrong with God here. God has made him right. What did he believe? It says he believed the Lord. Well, he believed what the Lord was saying to him in that moment, 
but we know that he was believing the whole backstory of promises that God had brought to him. The idea here is that he stood firm in his faith. He had been believing since chapter 12 when God called him and he responded in faith. It's not like he, for the first time, believed the Lord. But he stood firm in faith and he believed the Lord and what the Lord promised. He believed in, shall we say it, the hope of the gospel. For that is what Paul says was preached to him. Paul in Galatians 3. The gospel was proclaimed to Abraham. How was that gospel proclaimed? In a variety of ways, of course. The promise of the seed was the hope of the gospel. You remember that promise had first been given back in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Adam and Eve fell, God said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that was as obscure as that small phrase sounds. It was the seed, so to speak, of the story of the gospel, of the promise of one who would come from the woman and who would undo or destroy the works of the devil, who would rescue people. Abraham believed that. That promise was reiterated to him in Genesis chapter 12 when God said, Abraham, it's going to be through you that the seed that blesses all the families of the earth is coming. (laughs) Abraham understood Not nearly so well as we do about Jesus and his death and resurrection in such explicit terms. But he understood that the gospel was promised to him and blessing was promised to the world through his heir, the offspring. And he believed the Lord. And verse 6, you see this is all about grace. He believed and God counted it to him as righteousness. Righteousness here was not something Abraham had in himself. But it was something God counted to him and gave him a right standing with God. That is still the way God puts people right with him. It is still the way that you may even just right now at this very moment may become right with God if you're not. And it is not by your works, but it is through faith in this promised Redeemer. Paul quotes this verse, verse 6 in two places in the New Testament, I just point you to one right now. Romans chapter 4, 22 to 24, Paul comments, that is why faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is great news, friends. You don't need to put your faith in your own faith, but in the object of faith, Christ the Redeemer. Our faith, Abraham's faith, was not in himself. It was in the Lord and what he promised. This is so helpful. In order to Spend a $20 bill, what do you have to believe? You have to have faith in its purchasing power. If you're going to actually spend a $20 bill to purchase a product or a service, you have to believe that the 20 bucks is worth something. The believing of it won't get you the product or the service, but it will make use of that which does. And God's currency is Jesus. 
And all who trust in Him, all who make use of Him, are counted righteous before the Lord. Reckoned righteous. Because our wickedness is credited to Christ on the cross and He dies for it. And His obedient righteousness which He lived is credited to us and we are accounted by God righteous and accepted in Him. And this, dear friends, is a gift of God's grace and it is not of works. And we know this because it is received as a gift through faith. When you receive a gift, what do you do? You are getting paid as a wage for your work. You're receiving a present that you don't deserve. And so I said, say to you, if, if you are trying to measure up so that you could measure up to God's standard so that God will measure out to you what you think you deserve, then you are trying to make God owe you something. And God is no man's debtor. To be right with God and have God before you and against you comes simply through believing in this Redeemer. Must the one who wants to be right with God and know that God is for them and against them, must the one who, who believes believe perfectly? No. God justifies the ungodly, the scripture says. Abraham, after all, was a sinning, imperfect man. For 75 years, he lived as an idolater. And after coming to faith in chapter 12, at chapter, uh, the end of chapter 12, what did he do? He went down into Egypt, he lied about his wife, and he nearly gave her into the harem of Pharaoh. He messed up badly after coming to faith, yet God justified him. You don't have to be perfect in your believing. You don't have to be perfect. (laughs) To be right with God, you don't have to believe perfectly. You can be weak in faith. Abraham needed a sign to strengthen him in faith. But he did genuinely believe. He sincerely believed. He counted on God to send the offspring who would save the world. And he said, Lord, I believe you're going to do it. I just haven't seen it yet. When are you going to do it? And the righteousness of that offspring, Jesus, God counted to him. Faith says Calvin, borrows a righteousness from elsewhere of which we in ourselves are destitute. And he's right. And so it is for all who trust in Jesus. Faith is all you need. Just receive what God gives, what God promises. Look away from yourself and look to him. Realize you are empty, but he is full. You are bankrupt, but he is rich. Your works count for nothing, but the perfect works of Christ count for everything, and it's yours through faith in Jesus. And so if you believe that Christ is the Son of God who came, who died for our sins upon the cross in accordance with the Scripture, and God raised Him from the dead, alive forevermore as Lord and Savior, then you are the children of Abraham, heirs of the promise. And God says to his children, God who is Adonai Yahweh, God who is the Lord 
the lover of his people, the father of his people, he says to you, fear not. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. Does not Christ on a cross convince you of that? And are you struggling to believe it? Then let Christ offer to you in the bread and the wine. Deepen your conviction that God is for you and not against you. Because that's what he's saying as we partake of this meal. Let's pray. Father, we bless you uh, for the gift of your son. We thank you that he is perfect in every way as the God-man. He did all that's required for us to be your own beloved adopted children standing in your grace forever. Grant us simple, genuine, sincere trust in him. May we know the joy and the freedom of that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.